This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. And welcome to the Giving Thought podcast with your host, me, Adam, and my colleague, Rod. Hello. So, episode 13, the end of charities. So we're going to kick off this first section um, talking about the most basic question that you hear all the time in charities. Should we, as charities, be working towards a point where we're no longer needed? What do you think, Rod? Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of it's definitely one of those things you hear quite a lot uh, among discussions in the sector. That point of view, as you say, that actually the kind of desirable end goal of any charity should be to put itself out of business by solving the problem that it's seeking to address, and that actually that should be kind of counted as the ultimate measure of success. I suppose the the interesting thing is, you know, how many times has that ever actually happened mm. in practice? Um, you know, how would you actually go about uh, winding down? a charity or kind of you know shutting up shop when would you decide did you actually solve the problem or you know would it is does it actually make more sense in practice to kind of take the existing organizational form and evolve the mission and try and focus on other things given that you've already got all that kind of institutional framework in place that's right i mean it may seem it sort of seems like a no-brainer, and it seems like the sort of um, the moral thing to do, right? There are a lot of charities in the world. Depending how you measure it, we're looking at millions of charities around the world. Um, now, there, there needs to be a function, I guess, for some of those charities to end. Otherwise, you just kind of salami slice away at donations until they're spread incredibly thinly, and there's a question about how impactful that's going to be there. But on the other hand. Once, as you say, uh, the the kind of infrastructure has been built up to allow a charity to operate at some kind of scale, um, to have that broken down would seem like an awful waste. And it may be that it can be uh, that you know a cause can be can continue in a slightly different form. So you know, say for example, that you're set up to um, deal with uh, the uh, conditions and uh, and also try and prevent the spread of a certain disease. If you are successful to the extent that that disease is essentially eradicated, do you then lose all of the expertise and and kind of uh, logistical um, spread that you have to challenge that specific issue? Do you do you just lose that, or do you see if it can be applied somewhere somewhere else? So that's, I guess, that's a question that's worth asking. Yeah, and I suppose you know the different. It doesn't necessarily have to be as clear cut as basically you know closing up the doors and giving everybody their p45 i mean actually there are other options like you know merging with other organizations if your mission's changed or if you find that actually over time you're kind of doing much of the same thing Um, and we hear all of these kind of ideas um put forward quite often in the context of the recurring criticism you hear from a lot of people that you know there are somehow too many charities if people find out that there are 165, 180,000, whatever registered charities in the UK alone. And this to them seems absolutely absurd. And then they often say, you know, there's X many charities working specifically just on cancer. So, you know, we need to rationalize the charity sector. And they quite often put forward the idea of merger, particularly um, as a way of of dealing with this problem. Um, You know, I suppose 
it's a very awkward topic and one that tends to get uh, tensions in the sector quite inflamed. Um, you know, I, there's probably an argument in specific circumstances that mergers can be quite effective as a way of bringing together organisations, but it's much easier to say than to do in yeah. practice. And also, I think, ignores the fact that in so many of these cases, the reason that there are there's a proliferation of organisations is that when you look at what they actually do, you know, they're all addressing different aspects of uh, a seemingly similar cause, so maybe different types of cancer. They're taking different approaches. Some might be doing research work. Some might be offering palliative care and so on. They might be geographically specific. And all these kinds of different things, which actually you know, reflect the fact that the organization has arisen in a certain way and that just saying that you should kind of force them all to, to consolidate and, and uh, merge perhaps misses the point a little bit. Yeah, that's right. I mean, also that it may be the case that uh, a number of different organisations approaching the same subject, but with some degree of competition, uh, you know, you could say that that's a, that's a waste of donors' money because you, you're repeating the same kind of back office stuff in order for them to essentially compete for donations against each other. But if that competition yields a new solution or something, some new incredibly effective uh, way of doing something or just greater productivity and that charity wins out i know that's a kind of slightly neoliberal <laughs> way of viewing the sector mm. but might it be the case that actually that competition for donor support leads to charities becoming more effective over time it'd be it'd be an interesting thing to try and test but um but it i would i would want to see a clear case for why that isn't the case before I threw before I threw that out. Um, but I, you know, maybe that's uncomfortable for charities and donors to think about. But seems to me to be some logic behind that position. I think that's right. I think it's also worth just uh, saying quickly that actually, you know, this issue of uh, proliferation of charities, particularly ones whose purpose seems to no longer exist, is is a pretty big factor in the the history of charity and it sort of shaped the way the sector and philanthropy looks here in the UK and then by extension pretty much everywhere else so in the mid 19th century in London there was this huge proliferation of trusts in uh, parochial trusts in London uh, sort of following the Tudor era that had been around for ages but a lot of them they they no longer not only do they no longer really serve an obvious purpose they they're charitable objectives and aims meant that they the money literally couldn't be spent because the things that they were allowed to be spent on no longer existed so you know it was things like uh there was a fund to raise money to keep a, a particular torch burning on the corner of a street called cornhill in, in london and there was one for um spending money to get rid of ladybirds on a specific bridge in london all these kinds of ridiculous things and, and people started to wake up to the fact that there was millions of pounds even back then locked up in these charitable structures that could be doing some good, but because of the way they've been set up, wasn't doing any. Um, and the the controversy over that eventually led to the formation of the Charity Commission uh, in the UK as a mechanism to allow them to break open those charitable funds and start to distribute them towards real needs in as they were um, in London at that time. So it had a kind of hugely formative effect on on the whole sector. That's quite an, in a microcosm, that's quite an interesting way with dealing with the issue, isn't it? Because it, it sort of gives you a short answer to the question, which, you know, are there instances where, um, where a charity can uh, either have delivered its mission to the extent that it should no longer exist or 
where actually that cause becomes redundant. And the short answer to that clearly from that example is yes, <laughs> but but it's a much more complicated issue when you start thinking about a lot of the charities and causes that we have today. Um, yeah. And it was hugely controversial even back then. So yeah. let's not pretend it wouldn't be even worse now. Of course, and you know, particularly if you if you're dealing with uh, with trusts and things that are set up, um, it's legally quite complicated, isn't it? It is, yeah. And there's a whole area of law around. There's a thing called the see prey um, doctrine, which means that if you're going to try and take money from a charitable structure set up for one purpose, you have to try and prove in law that the purpose you're switching over to is kind of as close as possible to that original purpose and it all gets extremely complicated and let's not get into it here so in in stereotypical giving thought podcast style we've sort of broached a subject got quite close to sounding like we were prepared to offer a conclusion and then radically distanced ourselves from that and now it's time to move on Uh, our work here is done yeah So in this next section, we're going to go uh, move on and look at a, a new approach that seems to be gaining a lot of traction, or maybe it's an old approach, actually, we'll come on to that, um, but one that has some potentially interesting ramifications for the kind of idea of charitable giving and charities, and that is the model of direct giving. Uh, and Adam, you're going to run us through this one. What we're talking about is direct cash transfers. So that is literally, as it sounds, the idea of giving money to beneficiaries directly, just giving them money um, with as little kind of um, intermediary or, or, or transaction costs and, and applying no rules to to the agreement. You're just giving people who you think need money money. Um, now, obviously, in the kind of what is for philanthropy the state of nature, the kind of the, the period before you have kind of formal civil society and, and regulation around the subject, that's how people gave and it's still how a lot of people do give particularly in uh, in developing countries they give to people that they see who are suffering and they give them cash uh because they trust that scenario you know they know where the money's going and it has no transaction costs you're not paying for any back office services you're just giving money away and you know and this can be debated but you might look at at the development of philanthropy as moving away from that point to becoming more strategic and allowing for more kind of more scale and more expertise um, and more ability to track impact. But increasingly, there are people who are looking at that again and uh, they're using um, more complicated research methods and, uh, and tools for kind of transacting money to ask whether it might be that giving money directly to to people who need it in some scenarios is actually the most effective thing to do. So you have a number of organizations. I wrote a blog quite a while ago now about an organization called Give Give Directly. Um, and what's interesting about their approach is they're not guaranteeing an outcome. They're asking a question. And they're asking a question to the rest of the sector, which is if you are not using direct cash transfers, to allay some of the same problems that they're trying to deal with, so you know poverty and income insecurity, you need to have a really good argument for why what you're doing is better than just giving money directly to people, because they are, you know, they're doing that and they're able to measure the outcome. So you need to be able to measure why what you're doing is better than that. And I think that's a really interesting setup. Mm, yeah, essentially, it's kind of 
providing the counterfactual, isn't it? So you're saying, you know, let's assume that instead of putting this money through your existing programs and theory of change and strategy and everything, you just gave the same amount of cash directly to the person at the end of the mm. of the chain. Is what you're doing any better than that? If not, well, stop doing it then. So it seems like a really a really useful tool for philanthropy, doesn't it? But it, it does also beg some, as, as often often happens in, in philanthropy, there's danger that um, an interesting new approach becomes a kind of panacea that money moves behind and then money moves away from other things. So um, do you think that's a danger, Ros? Um, yeah, I think it is. I mean, it's something we've seen, you know, when we've discussed effective altruism, for instance, you know, that that is a fascinating approach, uh, kind of applying a sort of utilitarian view of ethics that's arisen out of academia to the practical application of philanthropy. But I think where it becomes problematic is if people extrapolate to, oh, this is how you should just do all philanthropy. And I think the same is true of something like um, you know, direct cash transfers. It should definitely be a tool in uh, it should you know tool in the toolbox of philanthropists and grant makers. Whether that is because they think it's a good way of getting you know money out to end beneficiaries, or whether, as you suggest, you know actually it's a sort of benchmarking thing. They're just testing whether what they're actually doing adds any value. But I think if people start to say, you know, charity is dead. Instead, we should just give all the cash directly to the people on the ground and let them decide what to do with it. Um, I'm not sure that's not a quite a reductionist way of looking at you know 400 years of history <laughs> that's led to yeah. where we are now. I mean, the, the comparison with effective altruism is a really good one because they're not. I mean, they're not actually unrelated, are they? Firstly, they're to to some extent they're being driven by a certain culture uh, of wealth uh, from Silicon Valley, um, and and secondly, that they, they have this same kind of approach of well. I want to use data. I want to measure what's happening and I want to do it efficiently by using uh, intelligent kind of systems of, of design uh, to, to, to set up my organization. Um, and fundamentally they're looking at, they're, they're kind of premised on what is the most effective thing I can do for my, for my dollar. Um, and, and both kind of both have the same criticism that's central, I would say, which is that, because they're looking at something that they can measure and everything is justified by that. And in the case of direct cash transfers, it's, it's taking a very simple uh, approach to dealing with a problem. That's, uh, could be, it could be that that's extremely effective in, in dealing with some of the, the ravages of, say, poverty or disease, but it's questionable whether they're going to change the system that's brought about that poverty or disease. You know, are, are, they gonna, are you able to, to challenge the system through direct cash transfers um or are you are you stuck to dealing with the symptoms yeah yeah i suppose it's a good point because it's kind of you know finding ever more effective ways of dealing with symptoms is fine in a sense as long as it's done in tandem with some thought about systemic change um i suppose also the, another thing about you know direct cash transfers i always think is interesting is how it plays into that wider debate within the kind of international ngo and aid sector about how to reverse this the sort of imbalance of power in favor of western agencies i mean there's a there's a lot of soul searching among big ingos already about how they kind of shift from just deciding for people on the ground what it is they need and then delivering it to them to trying to kind of empower them and actually 
probably you know the most radical version of that empowerment would be just to give the money to the people yeah. that you're trying to help so it's kind of interesting to think how it fits into that agenda well in in the context of the the title of this episode the end of charities obviously direct cash transfers offer a, a real threat there because they're they're peeling away much of the institutions of of charities and it it becomes less of an instrument of civil society and and more of a personal interaction where you know you you're giving your money and you want to know that it goes directly to an individual and you're asking the kind of organizational part of civil society to just step out of the way and in the case of of give directly you know they're guaranteeing that none of the money that you give them goes to supporting an institution uh, that's paid for by a by another philanthropist who set up the organization so it's really taking the civil society out of the equation it's taking the the, the formal institution of a charity out of the equation but i i suppose the the counter uh, question that you want to ask is whether whether that's desirable because it seems more efficient or whether actually there isn't something unique and important about civil society about the institutions uh, and about the ability of them to offer a different sector to the private sector and to and to government and i mean i think that's a really interesting question and, and ought to prompt some soul searching uh you know cards on the table i would argue civil society is important as an end in itself but that is a i suppose that's an argument that we're failing to have and and we may be uh we may be putting ourselves at risk by failing to try and convince philanthropists of that. Yeah, and I think that leads pretty neatly onto what we're going to talk about in the in the final section, because there we're, we're going to uh, consider the kind of even more radical scenario in which you really could kind of do away with all of the centralised infrastructure. And it really poses some quite challenging questions about what is what is it that civil society and you know the charitable organization actually brings to the table if you can do things in an entirely different way so rod as you set up in the last section we're going to talk uh we're going to kind of continue our conversation about uh, the end of charities and in doing that we're going to focus on um some of the opportunities that the blockchain offers yeah, yeah, it's been a while since we've uh, biffed on about blockchain on on the podcast, but, <laughs> but yeah, we've obviously done you know quite a lot of work looking at the impact of blockchain technology, which you know for anybody who hasn't um, kind of had the misfortune of listening to us uh, talk about it before, basically it's the ledger technology behind Bitcoin, although it has much wider applications. It's essentially a way of keeping very trustworthy records that are totally distributed, so you don't need a kind of central third party to maintain them um and one of the things that we've kind of subsequently been looking at and so have other people uh, has to be said is whether you know this doesn't just apply to the movement of money but actually to organizational forms themselves so there's a an idea of this thing called a distributed autonomous organization which is basically where you take all of the elements of governance you know for a charity or a corporation that that currently, you know, traditionally you have to record at company's house or on the charity commission register or whatever. And instead you record them on a blockchain and all of the nodes or the bits within that network basically are on a par. There's no need to have a, a center for it, but it allows a mechanism where you can reach consensus and make decisions and also kind of take action at scale without that center. Now, it's a pretty radical idea, but but just going back to what we were touching on at the end of the, the last section, 
what I think is really interesting about it is the, the challenge it poses, which is not to say, you know, we're not saying, oh, you know, blockchain's coming, charities are going to be totally redundant in 20 years' time. It's more a question of if we have these technologies that allow us to decentralize ever more, what is it about centralizing when it comes to charity that will still prove to be important? And I think we can think of some things, you know, as you said there, Adam, maybe there's inherent value in civil society itself. You know, I would argue um, that actually around kind of social campaigning, it's going to be very hard to do that in a totally decentralized way. Around service delivery, maybe that will be totally decentralized. So the role of charities and the people who work within them is likely to look very different. And that's, I mean, that that's where it starts to feel like a really big challenge. Um, and, and you know, possibly something that that's healthy for us to be forced to face. Um, if DAOs make us think about what it is that's unique about charities, other than the th- the kind of services they provide, that could be quite interesting. So, you know, the first thing uh, that I would say is um, whenever charities are challenged, the first line of defense is usually to say, but look at all the crucial things that we do. Look at the services we provide, look at the beneficiaries that rely up, that rely upon us. Now, that's the obvious thing to do, and it's quite, you know, in many ways, that's, it's quite right. Um, but in a scenario where all of those services could be replaced, mm. then then what is your justification? Yeah, I think that's right. And um, I think there's, there's a, a couple of things to say as well about, you know, particularly here in the West, I think, when thinking about anything, but, you know, charity as well there's a danger of taking a kind of whiggish view of history you know where you assume that everything had to happen to get you to the situation you are now and so we assume that kind of the charitable organization or the registered charity is the natural end result of development but actually you know all it reflects is the fact that people used to give directly to one another as we mentioned in the last section but over time as populations grew and became more urban and social problems became more complicated that was impractical so they had to appoint people and organizations in the middle to start managing their giving um you know and that's happened more and more but if we're at a point where technology is allowing things to come full circle and you know direct giving or DAOs mean that you can act in the same coordinated way to get money to address social causes without having to have that center then you need to think through, you know, whether there are other things about those structures that are still worth preserving. Um, and, you know, and if there aren't, then don't just hang on to them for the sake of it. Absolutely. Well, look, um, I think that's probably all we've got time for uh, for today. Um, but as always, uh, thanks for all the new listeners that we're getting. And please, you know, like, subscribe, tweet about us. Uh, however you think you might be able to promote us without us having to put the effort in, that would be fantastic. Um, but as usual, please check out the uh, program notes for this show. There's uh, a lot of blogs and articles and even microsites and videos um, that will give you loads more information to dive into about any of the subjects that we've discussed today. And all that remains uh, to be said is uh, goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. See you later. Bye.